and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. It's, it's, been, it's been a real fall. Yeah. But, yep. We had three weeks of fall and now it's winter. <laughs> and now it's winter time. And I was away for most of yep. fall. You missed fall. I did miss fall. I spent uh, my fall in Europe. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> Uh, Europe, it's where we came from, apparently, as white people. Um, yeah, I went, uh, Steve and I finally did our honeymoon, and we went to Amsterdam, which is very beautiful, and I spent six hours in the Rijksmuseum, and it was perfect, mm. uh, and we went to Brussels, which is, um, a grittier city, I would say, uh, and, uh, that was great, and then we went to London, and then we went to Edinburgh, and it was awesome, and we are back. Back in the good old U.S. of A. And you didn't even bring an accent with you. I did not bring an accent, although I was in line to go on a Disney-like ride in Edinburgh for like uh, the whiskey experience. And you get put into like these seats that look like whiskey barrels and you sit in them and then you take like this tiny ride and a ghost tells you all about the history of whiskey making. Oh. Yeah. Okay. It was actually magnificent. So we were standing in line and the woman was asking us where we were from as mm-hmm. we were waiting for the next barrel to come up. And I said, um, oh, we're from New York. And she said, originally? And I said, mm, yeah. She said, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were Scottish for a second. I thought I heard an accent. Look at you. And I was like, I think I'm just picking it up. Uh, and I said, actually, no, we're from the wee Scotland part of New York. And she thought that was funny. And then we got on the barrel and then the ghost told us about whiskey. So... That is my only experience with possibly being able to pass as a Scot. Unless it was all a dream. It was all a dream. <laughs> we go back to Edinburgh and they're like, there has, there has been a no, whiskey there. tasting experience here for 45 years. <laughs> Were they all ghosts? Were we drinking ghost whiskey? Ew. Yikes. Dead whiskey. Anyway. So yes, I'm glad to be back. It was fun. Uh... Yeah, I highly recommend. It's fairly <laughs> affordable, actually, to go over to Europe. Um, so, there so you Lauren go. condones visiting Europe. Yes, <laughs> that's a stance we can make here on this podcast. I know it's a bold stance. I know uh, <laughs> it could cause some controversy, but I don't care. You should go. Oh well, today we're not going to Europe. Oh. in this podcast. Um, we're going to another part of the world. So when we did back in the month of May, when we did mythology, May, yes, mythology, drop that clip in right there. Uh, (laughs) we talked about the different, um, the different theologies and the different, um, mythologies that we wanted to talk about. And, um, we skipped a big one. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like, oh, I'll just do it later. And now's that time. Oh, good. Okay. I'm excited. Today's episode is. Dharma, Karma, Samsara, an intro to Hinduism. So right off the bat, um, a source that was very helpful for me uh-huh. is um, the website for the book Hinduism for Dummies by oh. <laughs> Amrutar V. Um, Srinivasan. So that was very helpful for me in, in getting all sorts of um, details about this. So wait, not the book. No, not Hinduism the book. For Dummies. The website. The website, the website for, the, for book. the book. Okay. Yeah. The summaries are online. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Good. Oh, that's a great resource because if you can't get to say a, bar- a Schmarns and Bobel mm-hmm. to pick one up. Mm-hmm. The website is a great resource. Yeah, who so. knows if Hinduism for Dummies is still even in print? That's true. Who can know? It used to be a big book series, and now who knows? Yep. 
So Hinduism has no single systematic approach to teaching its value system. Uh, followers of Hinduism don't have a simple set of rules to follow like the Ten Commandments or the Torah. Um, Hinduism is the world's third largest religion and its followers, known as Hindus, number about 1.15 billion oh, wow. or 15% of the world's population. Oh my gosh. Okay. So it's the most widely professed faith in India and Nepal. It's also predominant in Indonesia too. So um, local, regional, caste, and community-driven practices influence the interpretation and practice of beliefs throughout the Hindu world. Hindus can choose to be polytheistic, that's belief in many gods, Mm -hmm. monotheistic, belief in one god, pantheistic, which is reality is identical with divinity, Uh, panentheistic, which is the belief that the divine pervades and penetrates every part of the universe and extends beyond space and time. I love that. Henotheistic, which is the worship of a single God while not denying the existence or possible existence of other deities. So really just covering all the bases. Yeah, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. You could also be agnostic. You could be an atheist. You can also be a humanist. Um, so ideas about all the major issues of faith and lifestyle include vegetarianism, nonviolence, belief in rebirth, and more. Those are all up for debate. So mm-hmm. Hinduism... There's no, there's no book like you're just, you know, you're not memorizing things like you're in a catechism class or anything. It's just like Hinduism has, it's open, it's open for interpretation. Yeah. For everybody. Okay. I'm into it. So since it's an amalgamation of different traditions and philosophies, a common thread among all these variations is the belief in one supreme being, Brahman, and adherence to the Purushartha, the four proper goals or aims of human life. So the Purusharthas are the inherent values of the universe and the blueprint for human fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Um, I found a good article on the Chopra Center website called Purushartha, the Four Aims of Human Life by Roger Gabriel Raghunavad. So first up is Dharma, that is righteousness. So no single English word adequately covers its meaning, but Dharma can be described as right conduct, righteousness, moral law, and duty. So on an individual level, you can think of Dharma as your true purpose in life or the ethical basis on which you live your life. Okay. Next is Artha, that's economic values. That incorporates wealth, career, activity to make a living, financial security, and economic prosperity. Ultimately, Artha is the pursuit of activities and means necessary for a joyous and pleasurable life. Oh, okay. That might be a little different than some other religions that we've we've learned about in the Mm -hmm. past. But um, basically, like, you need to earn money so that you can enjoy your life. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Um, Then we have Kama, K-A-M-A. That's pleasure. So that's um, desire, passions, emotions, pleasures of the senses, and the aesthetic enjoyment of life. So the right kinds of pleasure lead you toward your dharma and help you fulfill it with passion. Um, Many Westerners were probably introduced to the term Kama um, when the ancient Indian text, the Kama Sutra, became popular. Um, so it was generally misinterpreted as a sex manual. It's actually a guide to virtuous and gracious living that discusses the nature of love, family life, and other aspects pertaining to pleasure-oriented faculties of human life. So really, that book depicts Kama as an essential and joyful aspect of human existence. Leave so it. <laughs> it's not just yeah. Leave, leave it to us to be like, ooh, this is a sex book. book. <laughs> <laughs> And then the fourth one is moksha, M-O-K-S-H-A. That's liberation. So that's the soul's release from the cycle of death and rebirth, which is called samsara. It occurs when the soul unites with Brahman by realizing its true nature. So several paths can lead to this realization in unity, the path of duty, the path of knowledge, and the path of devotion, which is unconditional surrender. So karma 
are actions accumulated in previous lives. Okay. So a Hindu believes that the individual soul, also an, also called an Atman, is neither created nor destroyed. It has been, it is, and it will be. So actions of the soul while residing in a body require that it reap the consequences of those actions in the next life as the same soul in a different body. Mm -hmm. So the process of movement of the soul from one body to another is known as transmigration. And the kind of body the soul inhabits next is determined by karma. Okay. So... Um, so karma, you're accumulating, your soul is accumulating all of these things that you've done throughout your life. What you really want to do is moksha, the liberation, the soul's release from the cycle of death and rebirth so that you can, you can find, ascend. um, yeah. yeah. So that you can find everlasting happiness. So, so the idea is, you know, you were born a flea and if you were like a really good flea, you got to be like a beetle. Yeah. And then, and then you get to move up and up as long as you accumulate good, this good karma. Right. And the, the, the goal ultimately is to break free from that cycle and ascend to like exactly. perfect happiness. Love it. Exactly. So when people kind of use the term karma, like, uh, karma's a bitch. Yeah. Like they're uh, not really using it the right way. Yeah. Um, or you're like, oh, I hope this comes back to bite them. Like yeah, yeah. maybe it won't in this life, but maybe like mm, if they're a bad enough person, maybe they'll show up as like a sewer rat next time. I don't know. So <laughs> it's so. just kind of. Kind of like we kind of misuse the term. Yeah. So we've kind of flattened the idea of karma into just kind of like a comeuppance. Yeah. When in fact, it's much more subtle and multifaceted than that. Exactly. Okay. Great. Doing great. So um, texts. Okay? okay. There are two major epics of ancient India. So these epics were written in Sanskrit and in their essence describe the power of the Hindu gods in poetic verse. So first is the Ramayana. It's the narration of the story of Rama, the legendary prince of the Kosala kingdom. This story chronicles the life of Rama from his birth in the kingdom of Iota to his decisive victory over his evil nemesis, Ravana. So the epic speaks literal volumes on the virtue of true brotherhood, love, and the nature of sacrifice one has to make to defeat evil. It's one of the largest ancient epics in world literature, consisting of nearly 24,000 verses, wow. divided into seven khandas and about 500 chapters. The text survives in several thousand partial incomplete manuscripts, the oldest of which is a palm leaf manuscript found in Nepal, which dates to the 11th century CE. The Ramayana presents the teachings of ancient Hindu sages in narrative allegory, interspersing philosophical and ethical elements. Then you have the Mahabharata. So that is known as the longest epic ever written. It is more than 200,000 verses. What? <laughs> and it gives an in-depth insight into the rise of Hinduism between 400 BC and 200 AD. So at about 1.8 million words in total, the Mahabharata is roughly 10 times the length of the Iliad and the Odyssey combined, or about four times the length of the Ramayana. Which was already one of the longest. Oh my ever gosh. <laughs> so, That's amazing. <laughs> um, apart from its narration of the fight between the Kauravas and the Pandavas, it also details the scripts of the Bhagavad Gita. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so from beginning to end, it describes the great battle that pits brother against brother. And in time, the Bhagavad Gita went on to become the epitome of Hinduism's sacred scripture. So often referred to as the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita is a 700 verse Sanskrit scripture, which is chapters 23 to 40 of the sixth book of the Mahabharata. Okay. So the Bhagavad Gita presents a synthesis of Hindu ideas about Dharma, devotion, and the yogic ideals of moksha. Uh, the text covers the path of knowledge, spirituality, karma, and also the practice of yoga. Um, the Gita's call for selfless action inspired many leaders of Indian independence movement, including Mahatma Gandhi, who referred to it as his spiritual dictionary. Okay. So the Bhagavad Gita is part of the Mahabharata. Okay. So it's a smaller part of a larger text, but it, it 
um, specifies a, a lot of... It's a real good core text. Yeah, it's, it's dense. Yes, okay. for sure. Um, and then also text-wise, we have the Vedas. So those represent a collection of hymns and religious texts that were formulated between 1500 and 1000 BC. So these sacred verses were written in Vedic Sanskrit in the Indus region, where it is believed that Hinduism originated. They're seen as the ultimate authority containing revelations received by ancient saints and sages. Hindus believe that the Vedas are without beginning and without end. When everything else in the universe is destroyed at the end of a certain cycle of time, the Vedas will remain. So they're also called Shruti, what is heard, literature, distinguishing them from other religious texts, which are called Smriti, what is remembered. Okay. The Vedas, for Orthodox Indian theologians, are considered revelations seen by ancient sages after intense meditation and texts that have been more carefully preserved since ancient times. Wow. So the Upanishads are part of the Vedas. Um, they played an important role in the development of spiritual ideas in ancient India, making a transition from Vedic rituals to new ideas and institutions. So of all the Vedic literature, the Upanishads are widely known and their central ideas are the spiritual core of Hindus. Okay. So there's like a bunch of ancient texts that you hear about, but some of them are part of another one. Yes. (laughs) So the Upanishads are part of the Vedas. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. So moving along um, to the caste system in India. Yes. So all societies have some sort of social class system in which their people are classified based on education, culture, and income levels. In ancient India, such a system was inspired by Hindu scriptures and implemented as a way to create a society in which all essential functions were addressed and all people assumed vital roles based on their abilities. So centuries later, this classification was named the caste system, Mm -hmm. C-A-S-T-E. While in practice, it became seriously flawed, but its concept was based on an idea division. So first you have the Brahmin, B-R-A-H-M-I-N. They are the priestly and intellectual class. Um, They have qualities of serenity, self-restraint, purity, forgiveness, knowledge, uh, realization, and belief in God. Mm -hmm. So their associated job description includes serving as a gatekeeper of knowledge of Brahmin, uh, providing intellectual advice to governing bodies, offering priestly services and religious leadership, and grappling with fundamental questions of life. So wow. the Brahmin or the priestly or intellectual class. Okay. Next you have the Kshatriya. That's K-S-H-A-T-R-Y-A-A. Kshatriya. They're the warrior class. Oh. Um, they have physical prowess, courage, um, firmness, dexterity, uh, generosity, and lordliness. So the associated functions include defending the country from external aggression or internal strife, specializing in the science of arms, ammunition, strategies, and tactics of warfare. So the Kshatriya are the the warriors the protectors yeah like the knights mm-hmm. then there are the vaisya v-a-i-s-h-y-a the vaisya they are the trade and commerce class um they specialize in trade and commerce to procure goods and services so that society as a whole can lead a life of plenty uh, modern vaisya are primarily traders and entrepreneurs and then you have the shudra S-H-U-D-R-A. Um, they're the agricultural or labor class. Um, they do manual labor, such as tilling the land, working in the fields, raising cattle and crops. So in practice, this caste came to include everyone who doesn't belong to the other three castes. Oh, okay. So it's kind of the Yeah, the kind of the catch-all, um, except for the untouchables. So the untouchables were people who performed the most menial labor. Um, examples I found of that were tanning leather and sweeping the streets. So those okay. were like... Those are like the worst the of the worst jobs. Mm-hmm. So Hindu mythology states that all living beings pass through a continuous cycle of creation and destruction, which is called the Maha Yuga. 
This cycle repeats itself over four different epochs or yugas. The first of these yugas is the Satya Yuga, which spans a period of 1,728,000 years. Oh my gosh. Uh, so the Satya Yuga is said to be the golden age of truth and enlightenment. And in this age, people... I, an ideal state of mind and their actions were always reasoned and virtuous. The sacred texts further state that there was a surplus flow of ideas and thoughts between people. So currently we are in the Kali Yuga, which began at midnight on February 18th, 3102 BC oh. in the proleptic Julian calendar. So only 5,120 years have passed out of the 432,000 years of the current Kali Yuga. So we have another 426,880 years to go before you have to worry about what yuga we're in next. Okay. Well, good good to know. <laughs> wow. Good time. So when a person dies, most Hindus choose to dispose of their body through cremation. So mm -hmm. that's usually within a day of the death. Um, in Hinduism, death only applies to the physical body. There's no death of the soul. Um, Hindus don't believe in the resurrection of the material body, but they believe upon death, the soul, which truly represented the person, has departed or detached. So the body has no significance and therefore no attempt is made to preserve it. Mm. While some Hindus do bury their dead, the most common practice is to cremate the body, collect the ashes, and on the fourth day, disperse the ashes in a sacred body of water or other place of importance to the deceased person. So according to the Bhagavad Gita, the soul is a spirit that a sword cannot pierce, the fire cannot burn, the water cannot melt, and the air cannot dry. The soul is free, unbounded, holy, pure, and perfect. So again, the Hindu's goal is to avoid rebirth or reincarnation mm -hmm. so that the individual soul merges with the supreme soul and achieves moksha liberation. Mm -hmm. Hindus worship multiple deities, and these gods and goddesses usually belong to a certain pantheon of, de of divinities. Each of these gods, goddesses, symbolize a certain aspect of life. Deva is one of the terms for a deity in Hinduism. Um, Deva, D-E-V-A, it's a masculine term, and the feminine equivalent is Devi, D-E-V-I. In the earliest Vedic literature, starting around 1500 BC, all supernatural beings are called asuras. And by the late Vedic period, about 500 BC, benevolent supernatural beings are referred to as Deva Asuras. So in post-Vedic texts, such as the Puranas or um, some other stories in Hinduism, the Devas represent the good and the Asuras the bad. So in most things that you'll read about Devas or the gods, they're good and Asuras are like the evil spirits. Mm -hmm. So some early Vedic Hindu gods and goddesses. So these might not necessarily be the ones that we're all familiar with at this point, but um, if you if you remember when we covered like Greek and Roman mythology, you had the the ones that were there before the Titans. Yeah, exactly. So um, like these the are proto. Yeah, these yeah. are kind of like the early ones. So. Indra is king of the devas. Um, he's often perceived as the Indian counterpart to European deities like Zeus and Odin. Oh, okay. Um, Indra is um, venerated as the king of the devas who symbolize the aspects of thunder, storms, rains, and flow of rivers. By virtue of his stature among the early Hindu gods, Indra, who is mounted on an imposing white elephant named Ooh. Aravada and is armed with a thunderbolt named Vajra, also commanded the heavenly devas against their adversaries, who were the malevolent demonic entities known as the Asuras. So Indra wields his thunderbolt and is the protector and provider of rain. Okay. Next is Agni, the fire god. He's a major deity of fire among the ancient Hindu gods and goddesses. Regarded as the divine medium that accepts the sacrifices made during yajnas to the Hindu gods. So he accepts the sacrifices, the fire god. Surya is the sun god. He's the major solar deity among the gods. Um, he's revered as the sustainer of life in the Vedic literature um, and he is a golden warrior who arrives on a chariot pulled by seven white horses. Oh, man. Everybody loves getting pulled around in this, in this realm. <laughs> By white animals. It's amazing. Yep. 
Uh, Varuna is the god of sky and oceans, often depicted with his vehicle, the Makara, which is a hybrid sea creature often found in other ancient motifs. So um, beyond the scope of skies and oceans, um, the Rig Veda, part of the Vedas, mentions how Varuna is the guardian of the moral law encompassing both justice and truth. He serves his dual role as the ruthless punisher of sinners and the compassionate forgiver of the remorseful. And then there's Yama, the god of the underworld and death. Um, mm. He's venerated as the patron god of the ancestors and the divine judge of the departed souls. So Yama can also decide to condemn a soul, which, according to the mythical narrative, is then banished down to the 21 levels of hell. <laughs> the yeah. lower the strata, the worse the fate. As for his depiction, um, Yama is often portrayed with his dark green or dark blue skin carrying a rod made from a fragment of Syria and riding atop a buffalo. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Okay. So... That's kind of like the early ones. Um, So during the Vedic period, which ran until about 500 BCE, um, India saw the emergence of a hierarchy of social classes that would remain influential. And Vedic religion evolved and impacted Buddhism, Jainism, and Hinduism as well. Mm -hmm. So this leads us to the second half of the first millennium BC with the concept of the Trimurti or Trinity. So the Trimurti is the three deities that forms the core of the Hindu pantheon starting in the post-Vedic period to the present day. First, you have Brahma, the creator. Brahma is the creator of the cosmos and order. Brahma has four heads, which symbolize the completeness of his knowledge. And it is believed that from these heads came the four Vedas. Some also believe that the caste system came from different parts of Brahma's body as well. He has four arms and hands that represent an aspect of the human personality, mind, intellect, ego, and consciousness. He's not really worshipped like the other two here in the Trinity that I'll talk about. Um, Brahma's role as the creator is over now, um, and it is left to the others to preserve and to continue their path of incarnation. That's so very Brahma's interesting. the creator, but like he's done. Yeah, yeah, he did it. That's amazing. Yeah. But next you have Vishnu, the preserver. Sure. Um, Vishnu is associated with the role of maintaining the order and harmony of the universe. He's depicted in his characteristic pale blue skin, holding a lotus, a mace, a discus, and a conch in each of his forearms and hands, which represent his omnipotence and omnipresence. He's worshipped in many forms and in several avatars or incarnations. So some of the avatars of Vishnu, Rama who is the star of the Ramanaya, the um, the epic. So Rama is portrayed as an ideal son, brother, husband, and king, and as a strict adherent to Dharma. He's the model of reason and virtue and is often considered to be the ideal man due to his compassion, courage, devotion, and adherence to the Dharma. His bow and arrow symbolize his readiness to destroy evil and protect righteousness. He's also portrayed as Krishna, the teacher of the Bhagavad Gita and as the friend and mentor of Prince Arjuna in the Mahabharata. So for his devotees, Krishna is a delight full of playful pranks. But most of all, Lord Krishna's promise to humanity that he will manifest himself and descend to earth whenever Dharma declines has sustained Hindu belief in the supreme being over thousands of years. Um, Vishnu rides on Garuda, the devoted eagle that acts as his vehicle. So uh, Vishnu is the preserver. He's okay. trying to trying to maintain the order and harmony of the universe. Okay. So if we have we had the creator, we had the preserver, now we got the destroyer. Sure. So that's Shiva. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shiva is the destroyer associated with the concept of time tasked with destroying the universe in order to prepare for its renewal at the end of each cycle of time. So Shiva's destructive power is regenerative. It's the necessary step that makes each renewal possible. So depicted as the divine ascetic with with matted hair and an unkempt appearance um, with a snake coiled around his neck. Sorry, Tara. And, <laughs> and a trident. Okay. Um, so Shiva... Pr- 
uh, prefers his deep meditations atop the remote Kailash Mountain, and he also commands the power of fire for destruction in the drum that heralds creation. Hindus customarily invoke Shiva before the beginning of any religious or spiritual endeavor. They believe that any bad vibrations in the immediate vicinity of worship are eliminated by the mere utterance of his praise or name. Um, Shiva rides in on Nandi, the devoted bull who acts for his vehicle. So okay. Shiva's not necessarily evil. No. Like, so it's just the, the natural cycle of death and rebirth. Right. And death, death in itself, like destruction in, in and of itself is not necessarily like an evil process. Right. He's yeah. dealing with the renewal for cycles of time. Exactly. Just like autumn. Yes. Or yeah. winter. Great. I know. I give the best examples. Great analogy, Lauren. <laughs> Thank you. So there are other deities in Hinduism that we should know and should be familiar with. Sure. They include Ganesha, who is also sometimes called Ganapati. So Ganesha is the god of intellect and arts, also the remover of obstacles. Um, he's virtually conspicuous by virtue of his elephant head. Oh, yes. So mm-hmm. in the mythical narrative, he's the son of Shiva and Parvati, and as such is usually depicted as a jovial deity with a pleasant personality and plump physical attributes. He's venerated as the patron god of intellect, letters, arts, and sciences, who's also responsible for creating the order and classes of men. Um, so there are like, you know, some differing backgrounds on how Ganesha ended up with an elephant head. Sure. Choose whatever one you want, but that's that's what you got to know about. Okay. Him. So good guy, elephant head. Um, so now we're going to talk about kind of the wives of the of the three members of the Trimurti. So mm-hmm. Saraswati is the wife of Brahma. She's the goddess of knowledge. So she's a feminine deity of wisdom, art, music, knowledge, and the alphabet. Um, she's depicted in a white, um, and rather austere gown, um, bereft of bright colors and, or ostentatious jewelry. Um, and along similar lines, the later Indian religious and secular texts mention how virtue in its core is an aspect of Saraswati. Mm-hmm. She um, carries her range of items steeped in symbolism. She has a book, a garland, a musical instrument, and she's often accompanied by a swan, epitomizing purity. Hindus offer prayer to Saraswati before beginning any intellectual pursuit, and Hindu students are encouraged to offer prayers to her during their school term, and especially before, during, and after examinations. Oh, sure, yeah. Lakshmi is the wife of Vishnu, so she is the goddess of good fortune. Uh, She's the major deity of wealth, fortune, and prosperity among all of the gods, and depicted in Indian art as an elegantly dressed, prosperity-showering, golden-colored woman with an owl as her vehicle, signifying the importance of economic activity in the maintenance of life, her ability to move, work, and prevail in confusing darkness. She has four arms. They are symbolic of the four goals of humanity that are considered good in Hinduism. She can be seen sitting or standing on a lotus and typically carrying a lotus in, or in one or two of her hands. Um, so the lotus carries symbolic meanings in Hinduism and other Indian traditions, symbolizing knowledge, self-realization, and liberation. Lakshmi is usually shown wearing a red dress embroidered with golden threads. Also, okay. she's gold and has four golden arms and sometimes has a lotus. Great. She's the goddess of good fortune. So each of these gods and goddesses, it seems, are representations of the different aspects of Hinduism, like the the best, part, like the aspirational mm-hmm. tenets mm-hmm. of Hinduism. Okay. Yes. I'm getting it. You're getting I'm it. I'm doing great. This is great. Um, also, Parvati is the wife of Shiva. She's the Hindu goddess of fertility, love, beauty, marriage, children, and devotion, as well as divine strength and power. She is the mother of Ganesha. Mm. Um, she's usually represented as fair, beautiful, and benevolent. 
typically wearing a red dress, often a sari, and she might have a headband as well. Um, When she's depicted alongside Shiva, she generally appears with two arms, but when she's alone, she might have four. Um, She is shown holding a trident, mirror, uh, bell, dish, sugar cane, stock, or flowers such as a lotus. Then we have... Kali, oh, that's the my goddess favorite. of destruction. Yeah, I'm into it. She's often portrayed as one of the incarnations of Parvati's skin, which the goddess sheds, by the way. Oh, wow. um, so the rampage of Kali was and is a popular motif in Hindu worship. And as such, the violent goddess is often venerated by the cremation grounds, usually associated with battlefields. Kali is known for her tongue protruding from her mouth, her garland of skulls, yeah. and her skirt of bones. <laughs> this is to symbolize the death of ego and remind worshipers that the human body is only a temporary condition. So contrary to what her image might suggest, she's not actually responsible for human mortality. She's just, she's She's the goddess of destruction. And again, this isn't evil. No. Yeah. She's just badass. And then my favorite one I learned about is Durga, the demon slaying warrior goddess. Oh, I love that. (laughs) So she's one of the principal feminine deities among the Hindu gods. Um, Durga, literally meaning invincible or unassailable, is venerated as a warrior goddess tasked with vanquishing evil and protecting the scope of peace and prosperity to restore Dharma. She was created for the purpose of battling and defeating Mahi Shashura, the evil buffalo demon who was emboldened by the boon that no man or male could kill him. So it's Uh, just like in Lord of the Rings when he's like, no man can kill me. And she's like, but I am no man. Yes, exactly. exactly. So uh, Durga (laughs) is shown riding a lion or a tiger, attired in splendid dress and armor and armed with weapons held in her eight to 18 hands, Uh, depending on who's drawing her. Okay. Um, And she acts out of necessity for the love of good, for liberation of those who depend on her and a mark of the beginning of a soul journey to creative freedom cool so durga the demon slaying warrior goddess that's awesome so hindu worship known as a puja p-u-j-a typically takes place in a temple or a mandir Uh, puja is the act of showing reverence to a god a spirit or another aspect of the divine through invocations prayer songs and rituals an essential part of puja for the hindu devotee is making a spiritual connection with the divine hindus can also worship at home Um, they many have a special shrine dedicated to certain gods and goddesses during puja an image or other symbol of the gods serves as a mean of gaining access to the divine. So this icon is not the deity itself. Rather, it is believed to be filled with the deity's cosmic energy. It's a focal point for honoring and communicating with the God. The giving of offerings is an important part of Hindu worship. Um, It's common to present gifts such as flowers or oils to a god or goddess. And additionally, many Hindus take pilgrimages to temples and other sacred sites in India. Great. And I just want to cover a couple more important Hindu festivals. Please. So um, the festivals are ceremonies that weave individual and social life to Dharma. Hinduism has many festivals throughout the year where the dates are set by the lunisolar Hindu calendar, many coinciding with either the full moon or the new moon, often with seasonal changes. So first is Holi, H-O-L-I. It's celebrated predominantly in India and Nepal and is popularly known as the Hindu Festival of Spring, the Festival of Colors, or the Festival of Love. Holi signifies the arrival of spring, the end of winter, the blossoming of love, and for many, a festive day to meet others, play and laugh, forget and forgive, and repair broken relationships. It lasts for a night and a day, starting on the evening of the Purnima, the full moon day, falling in the Vikram Sambat calendar, in the Hindu calendar month of Fall which falls around the middle of March in the Gregorian calendar. So on the night before Holi, 
um, people gather, perform religious rituals in front of a bonfire and pray that their internal evil be destroyed. Um, The way that Holika, the sister of the demon king, um, Hiren Kayashipu, was killed in a fire. So the next morning is celebrated as Rangwali Holi, a free-for-all festival of colors where people smear each other with colors and drench each other. Um, So water guns and water-filled balloons are also used to play and color each other in anyone and everyone is fair game. Um, The frolic and fight with colors often occurs in open streets, parks, outside temples and buildings. Um, Groups carry drums, other musical instruments and sing and dance. Uh, People visit family, friends and enemies to throw colored powders on each other, laugh and gossip and share um, delicacies, food and drinks. So that sounds like a Yeah. When you think about like um, like our equivalent, I guess in the US would be like if people are doing the color run, they wear like a white shirt and then everybody throws like colored powder at them. Mm -hmm. That's what that's what holy is. In but it's India. like everybody. Yeah, but it's everybody. Yeah. And it seems like real. It sounds like a, a real great time. Great time. There's also Navarati. Um, so that is one of the greatest Hindu festivals, the festival of worship and dance. It symbolizes the triumph of good over evil. So Navratri takes place at the beginning of October around harvest time and is celebrated for nine days. It's also known as the Durga Puja. During this period, Durga, Lakshmi, and Saraswati are worshipped as three different manifestations of Shakti or the cosmic energy. Um, Navaratri is celebrated by communities getting together for dances and nightly feasts. For women, it's a time for shopping for new clothes and new pots. Yeah. It's an auspicious time to buy gold or jewelry and the gold markets are open late each night. Women dress elaborately each day for the puja or rituals and nightly dances. Again. Yeah. Sounds like a good time. And then the one we've probably all heard of at this point, Diwali. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's widely associated with Lakshmi. Diwali is the Hindu festival of lights, symbolizing the spiritual victory of light over darkness, good over evil, and knowledge over ignorance. It typically lasts five days and is celebrated during the Hindu lunisolar month, Kartika, which is between mid-October and mid-November, with lights, fireworks, and sweets. The festival is a time for thoroughly spring cleaning the home, even the fall, uh, wearing new clothes, and most importantly, decorating buildings with fancy lights. Oh, that's great. A lot of fun. Yeah, we just had uh, Diwali, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So that's everything I wanted to cover today. That's wonderful. I hope I didn't talk too fast for everybody, but you know me. Well, people are going to listen to it at 1.3 anyway. Yeah. (laughs) What the? I I had no idea. I had no idea that people just don't listen at a regular speed. No, I know. I couldn't even imagine doing it. But you know what? Life is a rich tapestry. Yeah. The thing that killed me was that we have never... Been interacted with by a bunch of our trivia guy friends. But as soon as somebody is like, I listen to you guys at 1.3, they're like, I listen to it fast too. Hey, over here, I listen to it fast too. So, Sean, Andrew, Lee, you're on blast. Yeah, what the heck do we sound like at one and oh a half? Oh my God, speed? I can't even imagine. I would, I would rip out my own eyeballs. Unlistenable. <laughs> Unlistenable. Unlistenable. But no, that was great. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I think I knew like 2% of that. Yeah. So it's that stuff was. It's that um, like you get a question about it and you make a wild ass guess mm-hmm. and you get it wrong and then you forget that yeah. you need to learn that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and as an art historian, I should be more familiar with mm-hmm. depictions of Hindu gods and goddesses because it shows up a yeah, lot. Yeah, exactly. In Southeast Asian art. So yeah. Yes. Um, so our quiz today is called A Passage to India. It's a quiz on famous ships and tidbits about India. Question one. The CSS Virginia was the first steam-powered ironclad warship dressed in black, 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 built by the Navy of the Confederate States in 1861. 
However, it wasn't totally produced from scratch, which United States seem forget did the Confederacy turn into the CSS Virginia. Question two. It's no secret that India just loves cricket, a multifaceted bat and ball sport with multiple formats, depending on the standard of play, the desired level of formality, and the time available. Multiple choice. According to the International Cricket Council, the ICC, of the three forms of cricket, which is typically played the fastest? A, test cricket, B, one day international, or C, 2020 international? Question three. The Battle of Trafalgar was a naval engagement fought by the British Royal Navy against the combined French and Spanish fleets during the Napoleonic Wars on October 21st, 1805. What was the appropriately named flagship commanded by Horatio Nelson during this battle, in which the Franco-Spanish forces lost 22 ships and the British lost none? Question 4. The Statue of Unity depicts Indian statesman and activist Sardar Vallabhadi Patel, the first deputy prime minister of independent India who united the 552 princely states of India to form the Union of India in 1947. What global superlative did this statue earn upon its completion in October 2018? Question 5. Endurance was the three-masted sailing vessel that sailed to the Antarctic on the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition of 1914. However, disaster struck when the Endurance became trapped in pack ice and was slowly crushed until it sank in 1915. Who was the ship's primary explorer whose fortunate crew escaped with their lives? Question 6. One of the most iconic buildings of India is the Taj Mahal, that ivory white mausoleum commissioned by the Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan to house the tomb of his favorite wife. In what century was the Taj Mahal completed? Question 7. Francis Drake, the English explorer and pirate, sailed the world from 1577 to 1580. Along the way, the ship captured more than six tons of treasure from a Spanish ship, and Queen Elizabeth knighted Drake when he arrived back to England. What is the name of Drake's famous ship, of which you can see a full-scale replica docked on the south bank of the Thames in London? Question 8. Too many people know the key to the vault. In the famous backwards episode of Seinfeld, Jerry, Elaine, and George head to India for the wedding of brawless wonder Sue Ellen Mischke after Elaine perceives her invite as more of an invitation. What is the title of that episode? Question 9. The White Star Line developed a trio of passenger ships named the Olympic-class ocean liners during the early 20th century. All three were designed to be the largest and most luxurious passenger ships in the world, giving White Star an advantage in the transatlantic passenger trade. Two were lost earlier in their careers, and one was sold for scrap in 1935. Name any two of these three massive ships built by Harlan and Wolf Shipyard in Belfast, Ireland. And finally, question 10. Ranthambore National Park in northern India is also a wildlife sanctuary, best known for seeing which specific creatures in their natural jungle habitat. I'll give you about a minute to think, and we'll be back with your answers.
I am. This is not going to be the one that frees me from the curse because <laughs> I, I know maybe two or three of these. It's okay. So, um, but no, this is good knowledge. The quiz is just as much about knowledge, like learning things, as the topic is. So yes. I got to keep that in mind. All right. Great. Here we go. Number one, the CSS Virginia was the first steam-powered ironclad warship dressed in black, 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 built by the Navy of the Confederate States in 1861. However, it wasn't totally produced from scratch. Which U.S. steam frigate did the Confederacy turn into the CSS Virginia? Uh, is it the USS Mary Mac? It is the USS <laughs> yeah, Mary <yeah>. Mac. <laughs> I was like, that couldn't possibly be a ship. <laughs> So Virginia was one of the participants in the Battle of Hampton Roads, opposing the Union's USS Monitor in March 1862. You've probably heard about the Battle of the Monitor versus the Merrimack. Yes, absolutely. So the Monitor was the Union's ship and the Merrimack was actually also the Union ship that the Confederates (laughs) turned into the CSS Virginia. Oh, okay. So um, it's chiefly significant in naval history as the first battle between ironclad warships. So the Northern Built Merrimack was a conventional steam frigate that had been salvaged by the Confederates from the Norfolk Navy Yard and rechristened the Virginia. So her upper hull was cut away and armored with iron. So then this 263-foot craft resembled a floating barn roof. Commanded by Commodore Franklin Buchanan and supported by several other Confederate vessels, the Virginia virtually decimated a Union fleet of wooden warships off Newport News, Virginia. On May 9th, 1862, following the Confederate evacuation of Norfolk, the Virginia was destroyed by its crew. The Monitor, which had 16 crewmen, was lost during a gale off Cape Hatteras, North Carolina in December 1862. The wreck of the Monitor was located in 1973, and in 2002, Marine salvagers raised the ship's gun turret and other artifacts from the wreckage. So there's pieces of both of these warships throughout a lot of museums and things like that. But the Merrimack became the Virginia. All right. Merrimack became the Virginia. Question two. It's no secret that India just loves cricket, a multifaceted bat and ball sport with multiple formats, depending on the standard of play, the desired level of formality, and the time available. According to the International Cricket Council, of the three forms of cricket, which is typically played the fastest? A. Test cricket. B. One day international. Or C. 2020 international. I think I know this answer because of Midsummer Murders and Inspector Morse, who both did episodes about cricket. Great. Um, so I think it's test cricket, A. Okay. Is it right? The answer is C, 2020 International. Uh, test cricket is a five-day format with oh, two innings each. Okay. Um, a one-day international, or also called an ODI, is one-inning matches of 50 overs per side. So that takes a while. And 2020 International, also called T20, is 20 overs per side and is usually completed in three hours. Okay. So that's what they... So you normally had test cricket and one days. Okay. And then they invented this 2020 thing because they were like, well, how do we get other people to watch this yeah, exactly. game? That- <laughs> they're not going <laughs> to Instead of spending out. five days at, yeah. the, at the cricket grounds. Um, instead, the 2020 is about three hours. Like that's like the length of a baseball, you know, a, yeah, an American baseball, baseball game. game. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, so yeah, that's why that, um, that came about. And it seems to be, it's growing in popularity. I actually saw a great, um, there's a series on Netflix called Explained, which oh, does yeah. like quick, like 20 minute, like, you know, what the hell is Bitcoin or, you know, mm-hmm. um, tell me more about global warming. So, the, yeah. you know, in little like digestible chunks. And they did um, a, a quick episode in their first season on cricket. And it was like the first time that I was like, oh, I kind of understand this. That's great. I'm going to have Thank to watch you. that. So yeah, they it seems impenetrable. Right. Exactly. But they do. They do a really great job in that episode. Okay. So great. I'll have to look that up. That. 
Okay, question three. The Battle of Trafalgar was a naval engagement fought by the British Royal Navy against the combined French and Spanish fleets during the Napoleonic Wars on October 21st, 1805. What was the appropriately named flagship commanded by Horatio Nelson during this battle in which the Franco-Spanish forces lost 22 ships and the British lost none? Was it Victory? It was! Yes. The HMS Victory! Woohoo! So conventional practice at the time was for opposing fleets to engage each other in single parallel lines to facilitate signaling and disengagement and to maximize fields of fire and target areas. But Horatio Nelson instead arranged his ships into two columns to sail perpendicularly into the enemy's fleet's line. So this was like a new Navy strategy. Um, so the British won a lot. Um, but during the battle, Nelson was shot by a French musketeer and he died shortly before the battle ended. Oh no. So he so didn't even knew. get to like deal with his victory. So, um, Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square, London was constructed during the mid 1840s as, um, a monument. I will tell you being in London and England, just the UK in general, Man, people really love Nelson. Oh, yeah. Even now. I was to the point where Steve and I were watching the British Antiques Roadshow the other night while eating steak and nail pie and uh, a Bakewell tart. We're oh very God. British now. You're so British I now. Know. <laughs> uh, that I was like, maybe I should do an episode on Admiral Nelson. So we'll see. It depends on how interesting his story is. It probably is. I mean, they're obsessed with him. There's got to be something good <laughs> about him. So Perfect. All right, question four. The Statue of Unity depicts Indian statesman and activist Sardar Patel, the first deputy prime minister of independent India, who united the 552 princely states of India to form the Union of India in 1947. What global superlative did this statue earn upon its completion in October 2018? Global superlative? Mm -hmm. I don't know, world's tallest? It is the tallest statue in the world. Oh, man. So. Tonight. <laughs> yeah, you were worried. Um, so it was unveiled in late October 2018 and is nearly five times taller than Brazil's famed Christ the Redeemer. Are you serious? Twice as tall as the Statue of Liberty and 180 feet taller than the previous record holder, China's Spring Temple Buddha. So um, the statue is divided into five zones of which only three are accessible to the public. So from its base to the level of Patel's shins is the first zone. It has three levels, includes an exhibition area, a mezzanine, and a roof. Zone one contains a memorial garden and a museum. The second zone reaches up only to his thighs, and the third extends up to the viewing gallery at 153 meters tall. So the rest is like the maintenance area and then the head and shoulders of the statue. So you can't go all the way to the top of him, okay. but um, you can go visit the tallest statue in the world. Wow, that's amazing. Cool. Question five. Endurance was the three-masted sailing vessel that sailed to the Antarctic on the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition of 1914. However, disaster struck when the Endurance became trapped in pack ice and was slowly crushed until it sank in 1915. Who was the ship's primary explorer whose fortunate crew escaped with their lives? I can't think of his name. I know. <laughs> well, that's what I'm asking you. I know. <laughs> And uh, it's going to make me mad when I hear it because I know I know it. It's just not coming up. Uh, Seward. Seward? No, that's not it. He's the guy who bought uh, Alaska. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. Tell okay. me what it is. His name is Ernest Shackleton. Ah, oh, Shackleton. Damn it. I knew it was an S. So... Their, so their ship like sailed into the ice where it got stuck and they mm -hmm. were like, oh shit. And then it slowly got crushed until it started to sink. So 
For almost two months, Shackleton and his party camped on a large flat ice floe, hoping that it would drift toward Paulette Island, which was about 250 miles away, where it was known that supplies were held. So after failed attempts to march across ice to this island, Shackleton decided to set up another more permanent camp on another ice floe and trust to the drift of the ice to take them toward a safe landing. So by March, so they've been doing this for like six months at this point, their ice camp was within 60 miles of Pollitt Island, but separated by impassable ice, they were unable to reach it. On April 9th, their ice floe broke into two and Shackleton ordered the crew into the lifeboats and to head for the nearest land. After five days at sea, the exhausted men landed their three lifeboats at El Elephant Island, which was 346 miles from where the Endurance had sank. Oh my God. This was the first time they had stood on solid ground for 497 days. They were finally rescued on August 30th, 1916 at South Georgia Island, more than 720 nautical miles from where their ship sank. Oh my gosh. So they- they For over a year. Yes. So they realized that like the, the, like this, oops, oops, (laughs) this this isn't going to work out, but- Shackleton, like a badass, was like, no, we got a plan. He's like, we're just going to drift along on some ice and have it take us to this island. And then they realized it wasn't working like that. Um, But nobody, none of his crew died. Oh, my God. They didn't have to eat each other. They didn't have to eat each other. (laughs) They, like, they survived. That's amazing. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Good for Shackleton. Question six. One of the most iconic buildings of India is the Taj Mahal, that ivory white mausoleum commissioned by the Mughal emperor Shah Jahan to house the tomb of his favorite wife. In what century was the Taj Mahal completed? I'm going to say, I'm going to say the 13th century. The Taj Mahal was completed in the 17th century. Wow. So it was commissioned in 1632 and completed in 1653. Taj Mahal means place or position of the crown. It was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1983 for being the jewel of Muslim art in India, and it attracts more than 7 million visitors per year. Huh. I didn't realize Newer than you think. Yeah, exactly. Question seven. Francis Drake, the English explorer and pirate, sailed the world from 1577 to 1580. Along the way, the ship captured more than six tons of treasure from a Spanish ship, and Queen Elizabeth knighted Drake when he arrived back to England. What is the name of Drake's famous ship, of which you can see a full-scale replica docked on the south bank of the Thames in London? I'm trying to think of a ship's name. Mm, Famous ships. It, It might be you know it or you don't. Oh, okay. Uh, then no, I don't know. Oh, the Beagle? Is it the Beagle? No. No, damn. Okay, go ahead. Tell it's me It's the it Golden Hind. Oh, no. I yeah. wasn't going to get there. <laughs> so um, his ship was originally known as Pelican, but renamed mid-voyage in 1578 in honor of his patron, Sir Christopher Hatton, whose crest was a Golden Hind. That's a female red deer. Oh, okay. So, yeah, if you're down in um, in the southern part of the of London, you can see a full-scale replica of it. Just, like, parked just in the middle up. with, like, a bunch of skyscrapers all around it. Like, yep. Figures. Question eight. Too many people know the key to the vault. In the famous backwards episode of Seinfeld, Jerry, Elaine, and George head to India for the wedding of Brawless Wonder Sue Ellen Mishki after Elaine perceives her invite as more of an invitation. What is the title of this episode? Is it, mm, is it called The Invitation? No. No, damn. I did know this one at one point. The the reverse one. The one that goes backwards. No, that's a friend's trope. Uh, <laughs> what is it? This is my personal favorite episode I know, episode it's your favorite Seinfeld. episode. It's The Betrayal. The Betrayal! Ah! <laughs> so The Betrayal alludes, 
overtly to Harold Pinter's play and film Betrayal. Uh, the debt to Pinter's play appears in the episode's title and the, in the use of reverse chronology, which mimics a prominent feature of Pinter's play, revealing personal betrayals in the plot. The backward chronology begins in India, ending in Jerry's very first meeting with Cosmo Kramer in his apartment 11 years earlier. Yeah, that's it's a great episode. So smart. Question nine. The White Star Line developed a trio of British passenger ships called the Olympic-class ocean liners during the early 20th century. All three were designed to be the largest and most luxurious passenger ships in the world, giving White Star an advantage in the transatlantic passenger trade. Two were lost early in their careers, and one was sold for scrap in 1935. Name any two of these three massive ships built by Harland and Wolf Shipyard in Belfast, Ireland. Okay, so one is the Titanic. Mm-hmm. Um, the other... Uh, it had another equally like big name, like big, big name. So was it like the gigantic? <laughs> I feel like it started with a G. Did mm, start, did one none start of them start with a G. Okay, we're fine. Um, what's a word that ends in antic? <laughs> All right, tell me what it is. Just tell me. Okay, the three ships are the Olympic, Olympic, the Titanic, uh-huh. and the Britannic. Britannic! That yes. was the one I was trying to think of. So the Olympic Ooh. was built in 1911, Titanic in 1912, and Britannic in 1915. The Titanic sank in 1912 on her maiden voyage. Um, mm. The Britannic sank in 1916 during World War One after hitting a mine laid by the mine layer submarine U-73 in the Aegean Sea. And then Olympic, the lead vessel, had a career spanning 24 years and was retired and sold for scrap in 1935. These ships were all nearly 900 feet long by 205 feet high, had nine decks, and the capacity to hold more than 3,300 passengers, officers, and crew. Um, so their their rival, the White Star Line rival, was called Cunard, and they had the ships the Lusitania, which was sunk by a U-boat in 1915, and the Mauritania, which was scrapped in 1935. So those are a couple, those are some big ships. Big ships from the 1910s. <laughs> Is that, that's your pop song. That's that pop song that everyone knows. Big Olympic, ships from Titanic, the 1910s. Britannic. <laughs> question, <Now> you know. <laughs> question 10 Ranthambore National Park in northern India is also a wildlife sanctuary best known for seeing which specific creatures in their natural jungle habitat I'm going to say tigers what kind of tiger? I'm going to say Bengal tigers. Bengal tigers. Yes. So Ranthambore participates in Project Tiger, which is a tiger conservation program launched in April 1973 by the government of India during Prime Minister Indira Gandhi's tenure. The project aims at ensuring a viable population of Bengal tigers in their natural habitats, protecting them from extinction, and preserving areas of biological importance. Great. Good yeah. work. Great job, Wonderful. Lauren. Thanks. They were worried. Well, you know, I didn't get Olympic or gigantic or whatever you said. Britannic. Oh I know. Whatever you just said. <laughs> I don't remember. It's fine. I don't remember. Um, great. Thank you, Julia, for your topic. That was so interesting. Um, and thank you for that. Uh, that The dang quiz. The dang quiz. Well, uh, thanks so much for listening, you guys. Please um, rate, review, and subscribe. Oh, and, tell a friend. Oh, tell a friend, please. And uh, we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye.